0: Let's talk about sarcoma, a podcast that looks at the expected, the unexpected, and everything in between post sarcoma diagnosis. Brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. With me, your host, Michael Whipper Whipflee,
1: and me, Catherine Mahoney. In this episode, we talk to clinicians and researchers working within the sarcoma space. We will be hearing from Dr. Emmy Flurin, Associate Professor Georgia Halkett, Professor David Thomas and Professor Richard Carey Smith will also be hearing from both Tanya Rice Braiding from CRBF and Mandy Basson from Socket to Sarcoma. Uh, welcome to the podcast today, Professor Richard Carey Smith.
2: Well, thank you very much, Kath.
0: Good to have you on board, Richard. Uh, this has been a great podcast. We have been learning a lot uh, about sarcoma, um, but it's great to f- to speak with a surgeon who's actually dealt with um, i suppose removal at times um, and also you've dealt with an understanding of the severity and how these um, mutations and cancers form um, as i as I struggle to find the right words. but it seems to be um, Richard that these um, sarcomas are found especially in the osteo world um, late in the development because you know it's so common for somebody to have a sore knee or a sore shoulder what stage yeah. do you normally see somebody
2: so um, uh, uh, in, in my role as an orthopedic oncology surgeon I, I'm involved from the very beginning and and that is um, if there's a lump or a bump or an ache or a pain um, often uh, the GP has done an x-ray or a scan of some sort and um, and instead of finding uh, sort of more benign cause of shoulder or knee, knee pain or mm-hmm. of, of a lump, then there's more concerns. So I'm involved at the beginning of the journey.
0: And Richard, when you say that um, the beginning of the journey, roughly in terms of the average person you see that is is um, dealing with a sarcoma, is it, is it is it fast growing? Does it develop rapidly or it varies?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so, so sarcoma, I suppose we should say what a sarcoma is. A sarcoma is a malignant tumor of connective tissue origin. So when we're put together, we're just a little ball of cells. Mm-hmm. And slightly before that stage, there's a, 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 when we look at an embryo, there's the outside, there's the inside, and then there's the middle bit. And sarcomas come from the middle bit, the connective tissues. Right. And they occur anywhere in the body. We break them down into bone and soft tissue, and then we break them down into their tissue of origin if we know that. And because they there, uh, particularly in the soft tissue world, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of subtypes, that can cause some of the difficulties in management. That also that also it gives us some of the ranges and behaviours in that some of these grow extremely quickly. Sure. Almost, you go to bed and wake up the next day, and they're bigger. Oh God. Uh, the majority of them grow relatively steadily. So. The average patient will have been aware of a lump or a bump for about three months by the time they present. Mm-hmm. And they may or may not have seen their GP with a, what's this lump? Oh, that's a nothing, which is part of the problem yep. through to, um, often people ignore them because most of these are painless. Sure. And people are worried about things that hurt. Um, but they're not too worried about things that are lumpy, which, um, which is, you know, some of the important advice really is that lumps and bumps shouldn't be there. Yep. And um, you should um, you should see a medical practitioner to understand exactly what it is.
1: Thanks, Richard. Um, would you mind me asking why you chose to work in this very challenging specialist area of sarcoma?
2: Uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, what, how did I end up doing this? Um, um, so I always liked the, the science side of things. Um, I suppose I was a, a reasonably diligent student. Um, I also like the multidisciplinary care. <coughs> Excuse me, and what that means is that um, sarcomas are not just managed by a doctor. they may be a lead clinician, but it involves input from all sorts of different specialists. And I enjoy that collaborative care. Um, but but I also enjoy the technical challenges of the surgery and um, helping people through with a you know initially very challenging problem, and then and then heading through to um, to fixing that problem. So I, I enjoy all assets of that as well as the sort of technical challenges.
0: Where do they most commonly appear in the osteo world, Richard? Is it, is it a leg? Is it a femur shoulder?
2: Um, yeah. So um, the, the lumps and bumps can appear anywhere in the body. Um, and in the extremities, they're most common around the knee. Right. Um, and then around the, the, the soft tissues are more common where there are bigger muscles. So uh, around the thigh, the, the buttocks, the gluteal compartment. Right. Um, but They can occur anywhere. Uh, But generally, big joints and big muscles because there's more tissue there. But uh, once again, they can occur from the tips of the toes to the top of the head. Um,
0: Wherever it chooses.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, Richard, you're head of the WA State Sarcoma Service, which is the only one in Australia. Could you please tell us what a state sarcoma service is and the benefits of this for sarcoma patients?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, the the, re- the reason that we have a centralized sarcoma service within Western Australia is that if we look at uh, when patients present with uh, with these and then um, the, the issues that can occur, about one in five, so 20% of patients by the time they present to me have had some sort of delay in management. Right. Uh, and that may, may be the patient saying, well, I've got a lump, but I'm just going to ignore it because it doesn't hurt. That's very common. That may be um, the assumption from a treating uh, clinician, whether that's medical or physio or whatever, that the lump is a, a lipoma, and a lipoma is a benign soft tissue tumour, which is very common. Twenty uh, percent of soft tissue lumps are not lipomas, um, or it may be the assumption that the source of the pain is something the physio can stretch out. Um, and so, when I look back at my my time, um, um, uh, When I started, about 30 to 35% of patients were presenting late in the piece. And when I look at my predecessor, David Wood, who's just retired or in the process of retiring um, uh, from clinical practice, um, when he started 20 years before, 50% of patients presented late in the piece. Mm. So in, in my world, that's unacceptable. And uh, so I worked with the director general uh, at the time um, and said, look, th- this isn't good enough. We- we- we've got to do better for patients. Yeah, yeah. So what that means is that when a patient with a suspected sarcoma is referred to the public hospital system, they automatically get sent to the appropriate specialist as opposed to the generality of uh, doctors and surgeons that may be involved in the treatment. Mm-hmm. What that means is that they get timely access to um, a specialist clinic. And that's not just me. It's the team of doctors that work with me and our specialist nurse, uh, Jackie Woods. They then get timely and very quick access to the appropriate investigations and then quick access to the correct treatment by knowledgeable, experienced, treating doctors. So I expect if a patient's referred to me one hundred, just on just near one hundred percent of patients are seen within two weeks, right. and it's not one hundred percent because of the geographic difficulties with yep. working within Western Australia. But essentially, I would expect to see someone and have a diagnosis and a treatment plan two weeks after seeing them. Yeah,
0: that's great. It's quick, isn't mm. it? Now,
2: if if you get put into a general clinic, it may be you know with lump, please see that may be six or nine months until you're seen. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Why is that important? Well, we know that if you're seen, uh, and and there's studies from around the world. There's great research from around the world that demonstrates that if we get timely access to the right care, we get better outcomes. And that may not just be survival. That may be the function. You know, if I if I see a patient with an osteosarcoma, they get appropriate early access to chemotherapy. They get the correct early operation. They return to work. Yep. Um, and and as most of these patients are children or young adults, although they can affect all ages, if I can get dad back to work, oh, he then he remains the provider for the family. Mm-hmm. The, the, the difficulty is that if there is a delay in treatment or the wrong treatment is done, often through mistake as opposed to malintent, what then happens is that I may not be able to save the limb or the operation I need to do may be much more uh, destructive to the function and that patient may not get back to work mm-hmm. and and so you know I, I lobbied directly with the state government uh, we presented an argument and we now have a centralized service which means that we can within western australia deliver very rapid diagnosis and treatment for the people of the state
0: well you, you talk about the surgery and some of the operations you do um Surgery is involved in, in most sarcoma management and we often hear the term wide margins. What, what does that mean and why is that important?
2: Well, the, that, that is ultimately the crux of what we do in surgery. So, so what is a margin? Well, if, we can look in, look in, look, if we're drawing a picture, I draw this picture often for patients. We've got a lump and then I can draw that lump in whichever bone or soft tissue it's come from. Mm-hmm. If we were to chop the lump out, you can make an incision in the skin and then scrape the lump out. That's an intralesional resection. You can cut around the outside of the lump. That's what five-year-olds do when they cut shapes on a piece of paper. Yep. There's no dotted lines on the inside, unfortunately. It's a design fault, but that's a marginal resection. Mm -hmm. And then there's wide resection, which means cutting normal tissue around the lump. And there's one more, which is radical, which we don't use that often. Now, the importance of that is these things grow from the inside and spread out. And they spread from the edge of the lump and that's what we call the reactive zone. And to safely remove a sarcoma, we have to remove normal tissue all the way around. Now, I go to meetings with uh, orthopedic oncology surgeons uh, around the world where we debate exactly what a wide margin is and how far that is. And that ultimately depends on what the tissue is. Mm-hmm. So um, muscle is not a very good barrier to tumor progression, so that may be a couple of centimeters. Right. Around a muscle, you've got the white stuff, the fascia, which is not necessarily very thick, but is an excellent barrier. It's like an electric fence. The animals oh, right. don't want to cross it.
0: Okay,
2: all right. So it doesn't have to be very big, but it's really good at stopping that tumor progressing. So that may be point one of a millimeter. Sure. So it comes down to what okay. is the tumor, okay. uh, where is the tumor, and a really good knowledge of anatomy of how to get it out.
0: Interesting.
1: Uh, Richard, um, another term we hear a lot when talking about surgery for sarcoma is limb salvage. What does yeah. this mean um, and why is that important?
2: So, if you go back not that far 20, 30 years um, and um, uh, what, you know, that, that's, uh, that's not a long time in medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the most common treatment for a tumor around the knee would have been an amputation. Right. Now, the function for that's often not too bad, but if you go a bit more centrally to around the hip or within the pelvis, an amputation is a very disabling operation. Mm -hmm. It's got very profound psychological impacts, and it's got very significant functional impacts. And we still do amputations, but rarely. So, limb salvage is the technique of surgery whereby we remove the tumor with adequate wide margins. In other words, we get clear normal tissue all the way around. Mm -hmm. And that's important because it means the tumour is unlikely to recur, and we preserve the function, so the patient can walk, uh, can often ride a bike and or swim, um, and in many ways uh, get on with a normal or near normal life. Uh, and that is one of the most rewarding parts of my surgery, in that uh, you know that's obviously going through people's heads, and 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 that's pretty scary if it's you, it's your children that are going through this process. Mm. But more than 80% of the time, in fact, it's, it's probably in the 90-plus percent, uh, we can do limb salvage, preserving a patient's limb, and that can be arm and or leg, um, and enable them to get on with a pretty normal That's life. That's amazing. That's fantastic.
0: So as a clinician and also involved in the research, how important do you believe you know, the access to the, the quality clinical data is?
2: So access to data, you know, knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. Okay, And um, if we know what we are doing, we can record our outcomes. That's a basic tenet of medicine. That's the, the principle of audit. Yep. And furthermore, when we know what we're doing, then we can improve the outcomes of our patients. So um, this is borne out by many, uh, many studies um, demonstrating that when patients are involved or recruited to studies, they do better. Why do they do better? Because you're keeping a more careful eye on them. Mm-hmm. And so fundamentally, and and certainly through the children's hospital, we're very lucky in that where possible, all children are recruited to a study should one be open. In the adult world, that is always more difficult due to funding. Um, But fundamentally, uh, my goal uh, uh, towards the end of my career, and I'm about halfway through, would be to increase access to research for all of our patients so that everyone uh, has has uh, a good understanding of their tumour and access to best available um, uh, treatment uh, for their cancer.
1: Um, Richard, what, if any, do you see as the benefits of having patient support organisations such as Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation and, and SITS as an extended yep. arm of the multidisciplinary team?
2: So one of the things that's pretty unique with sarcomas, and and one of the things that's really heartwarming, is that um, w- every year, um, historically, we've had a, a multidisciplinary meeting with all sorts of clinicians, basic scientists, um, rehab specialists, uh, and interest par- interested parties coming to that meeting. Because fundamentally, what I'm doing is about taking care of a person, mm-hmm. um, and and part of that is their family. So what the the, the charities do. Uh, is is really really important because you know I spend my period of time with the patient and their family. Uh, the nurse consultant then helps them navigate the hospital journey. But the role of the these organisations in the background is the the difficult questions of like, can I speak to someone else that's had this condition? Mm-hmm. Um, what does this mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember when my mum had cancer and she went through one of the most valuable parts of her treatment was being able to pop in and talk to someone. And it could have been a just a simple conversation of how you're doing yeah. Yeah. Um, you know can I have a cup of tea to, to, to give sucker and support now more important to that, um, the specialty organizations uh, what they do is that they're raising money within the community to support research they're providing education and awareness and part of my role is education and awareness. I go to schools, I go to uh, meetings I tell people what sarcomas are. Um, and what the, what these groups do is they have ambassadors who are you know people like Whipper um, out there can spread the message and and get that message to more people because, as I said, knowledge is power mm-hmm. so the, the the organizations that support us are are key to that they provide patient specific information they provide some support through these difficult times, and they provide, help us raise edu- provide education and awareness to the people in the community. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Richard, wanted to ask, and we have been asking this question to to some people we've spoken to on the podcast, but if you were granted a a meeting with our health minister, the Honorable Greg Hunt, how would that chat go uh, when applied to funding and advances for sarcoma?
2: Um, I I suppose that would, um, uh, and I've thought long about this question. Uh, Fundamentally, um, what we're doing um, is we're trying to provide best possible outcomes for patients and their families. And, uh, there are some strengths in the system that we've got. Yep. You know, we've got access to world-class uh, implants. We've got great doctors and nurses in hospitals. Um, but there are weaknesses in what we can do. And the thing that I would love to see is that I'd love to have um, the the research support so that every patient that presents, we get good understanding of the genetics of their particular cancer mm-hmm. so that if they do need chemotherapy or the newer version of chemotherapy, the targeted immunotherapies, we should be able to offer them that. Because that can be life-changing and there is continued research which is published of a very high standard demonstrating really high survivals of what were previously considered incurable cancers. So
0: they're not getting that now because we can't identify (laughs) the cancer properly?
2: We can make the diagnosis yeah. histologically. We can do some of the genetic tests, but the whole genome analysis we we, we can't do for everyone. Um, there's a lot of talk to try and arrange that. Why can't um, we? And, uh, cost and it's a newer research tool. Sure, and, sure. and then then and then and then the application of that. You know, for instance, if we find a gene within that cancer, and we have a treatment for it, that may be a treatment. For instance, a prostate cancer so then the drug is not licensed for treatment of a osteosarcoma so then we have difficulties of crossover and and that requires quite an extensive uh, academic medical oncology support network right um for the for the funk for the some of the recon the surgeries we do the functional outcomes um you know i'd love to see um the specialized research that we get uh, the, the rehabilitation that we can get for um for all patients and and you know if we go to the amp- some of the amputee stuff we can we could we've got Great uh, inpatient re- rehabilitation for that, but for some of the uh, osteo- for the uh, the complex reconstructions, I'd love to see um, you know. More physiotherapy support. We, we've got great data that demonstrates shorter hospital stays with more physio support. Yep. Um, and, and we, you know, we we have our, our, our physios cut because it's a relatively cheap thing to do, and patients can get up and walk. Mm-hmm. But we know that earlier, more aggressive rehab equals better, longer term outcomes, and mm-hmm. it's cheaper for the state longer term. Yeah. So there are often some simple things that can be done to, to help to help us get where we want to be that's
0: a good answer
1: well hopefully the honourable <laughs> Greg Hunt will listen to listen the podcast up, <laughs> and, my uh, phone's and always yes. on Your honour <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we will uh, pass it on
1: and, I, and, yeah. I, and Richard I tell you when when you're less busy and a cure is found uh, I think you could get on the radio you've got a good voice yeah, you great voice you do uh, yes
2: <laughs> well thank you very much of um, course I, I'd be overshadowed by the, by the wonderful whipper who he's uh, wow. not big to you. Yeah. He you continue, saying con- that he's continuing keeping, <laughs> me, keeping me <laughs> laughing very good at what he does. He's a great
0: broadcaster whipper. I'm a huge fan. Um, you
1: yourself in the third person again. I
0: know, sorry, I'll snap out of that. Richard, yeah, yeah. Richard could do riddle time or quote him a quote uh, face. could do riddle time. Riddle, riddle, riddle. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the job, he buddy. You've got the job. We'll oh, send you a hearing. Wow. <laughs> Richard, mate. thank
1: you so much for your time. Um in, for your time, in all guys. seriousness, thank you. We know how busy you are. So thank you very My much. My pleasure. We'd like to welcome Tanya back to the podcast. Tanya from the Cooper Ice Braiding Foundation. How
3: are you? I'm well, thanks, Cath. Hi, Whipper.
1: Lovely Hi, Tanya. Here.
0: Always. We've learned so much through the podcast and all the different people that we have had a chance to speak with, which has been fantastic. In closing, though, we just wanted a few thoughts. Um, we'd love a message from you for anybody that has a suspicious lump or, or a pain that um, persists.
3: Yeah, sure. Look, in my mind, it's it's don't delay having any, any unusual changes to your body checked out. You know, lumps, bumps, prolonged pain all need to be carefully checked out by a doctor. Uh, symptoms persist. In, you know, you must insist upon further diagnostic testing, maybe a scan, an X-ray, mm-hmm. or simply just get a second opinion. Um, you know your body better than anyone else. Whilst the chances of it being a sarcoma diagnosed is very low, it, it should always be ruled out as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
3: Um, Tanya, what
1: about those who've been diagnosed? Um, what would your takeaway be for those patients listening?
3: Okay, uh, look, I think it's about sort of not ever being afraid to ask questions. You need to empower yourself. You need to put yourself in control of your cancer journey. Uh, ensure you're treated in a cancer centre which has a verified psychoma specialist um, multidisciplinary team and, um, you know, a dedicated psychoma program. Uh, Lists of verified centres and contacts uh, may be found on the uh, ANZOR website. You need to know your rights. It's okay to request a second opinion if you're not feeling confident Mm -hmm. of any facet of your cancer management. Take charge of your own advocacy and never be afraid to reach out for help. Organisations like Socket to Sarcoma and uh, CRBF are happy to assist. Um, And and remember, you never walk this road alone.
0: Yeah, yeah, very important. Tanya, how do you see um, the future, uh, or how do you see the way forward in the future of sarcoma in Australia?
4: Well, as you
3: both know, August twenty-four each year marks the date that uh, two inspiring young people, Abby Basson and Cooper Rice-Braiding were tragically taken from this world at mm. the hands of sarcoma. As we know, both Abby and Cooper started foundations to raise funding so others didn't have to go through the living hell that is a sarcoma diagnosis. As the mother of one of these children, I, I found it has become increasingly unexpe- unacceptable to me to continue the rationalisation over lack of quantifiable progress We've seen over the past four decades or so, despite the excellent work that is being done by many. Um, I repeatedly hear sarcoma is too complex, too difficult, underfunded, and it's a rare cancer, so it doesn't necessarily receive the attention it deserves, yeah, all of which are true, um, but these are facts we've known for many years, and they're not necessarily unique to sarcoma. Cooper and Abbey understood those challenges very, very well, yet it didn't prevent them from doing something about it, often under great um, personal duress. For that reason alone, the two foundations now continue to follow their lead. Too hard is, is simply not a justification. No. When lives continue to be systematically lost. So I guess, you know, bringing it back to, to basics, the national cancer survival rates you know over the past 25 years have improved by 20 percent or over 20 percent yet you know we we're not enjoying the same progress um, so I, I guess the overriding message is no matter how difficult the job at hand appears change is possible and progress can be made we need look no further than to comparable cancers that once shared the same challenges um, yet of have- now made enormous inroads. So, Tanya,
1: in, in your opinion, how do you see that happening?
3: Now, that, actually, that's a very good question. Um, I think most likely with the advent of science, genomic technologies and precision medicine, we're finally in a position to change the statistics for rare cancers as well. Now more than ever is not the time for nihilism. Now is the time to, to put in the hard yards. The phrase, it's too hard, is no longer an acceptable nor accurate response to the problem at hand. So we look to the future with untold hope and optimism. And the key, I guess, is working collaboratively to source innovative research solutions, improve patient support capabilities, to raise funding, to facilitate clinical research and to continue to create community awareness of this cancer. In short, if if, if Abby and Cooper could uh, set the wheels in motion, and we have no valid reason not to perpetuate their legacy Completely. and finish it
0: off. Completely well said. Absolutely.
1: You know, we are we are we were both honored to to be friends with Coop. Um I know I speak for both of us. Mm-hmm. It's been wonderful to be part of this podcast, to get to know Mandy and the work that Abby began um all those mm. years back. And you're right, those two starting this when they were on their sarcoma journey. Is is and has given hope to to other patients, and Absolutely. so we're very. You should be very proud. We're very proud to be part of this podcast, Tanya. Yeah.
3: Well, finally, obviously, the thanks has to go to the two of you for um, taking on what I consider to be a very personal project, not an easy one, and and in doing so, breathing so much life into it. Um, it's a difficult topic. It's 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 not um easy to, to to listen to a lot of these remarkable stories from these outstanding human beings who who have been brave and courageous enough to share their stories. And um the love and the personal touches that you've put into the Let's Talk About Sarcoma podcast series has been truly humbling. I just can't thank you enough.
1: No, we are very honoured to be part of this and we have met some incredible, as yeah. you said, people along this process. Well, great, mm-hmm. to,
0: great to learn about it, great to to hear the personal stories like Kath mm-hmm. said, but also to realise how strong and resilient the community are uh, and the people involved mm-hmm. that, are, that that have given their life and also continuing to fight for this and mm-hmm. the work that is being done and will be done.
3: It's, it's so true. It's, it's something we've known for a long time, but it's great we get to share it with the rest of the world now no thank thank you tanya Tanya. thank you thank you both again
1: and we're joined by mandy Basson from socket to sarcoma again mandy lovely to have you back on the podcast and it's lovely to be able to catch up with
5: you both again
0: Mandy, we learned so much from the conversation that we had and, and the story that you shared. It really was moving, and I think not only in terms of understanding sarcoma and the efforts we're all making here today and raising awareness and also the, the required funding um, that we'll continue to push for, but I think there were some, some great life lessons also in the story that you shared, which I think so many people can take, take things from, the bond that you had and, and, and how things played out.
5: Oh, well, thank you for that. I hope it was of some use to somebody. Oh, I'm
4: sure. Absolutely sure
5: it was, Um, Mandy.
1: What would your closing message be to anyone who has a suspicious lump or pain
5: um, that's that's persisting? I think what I'd say is number one: be your own advocate because nobody knows your body quite like you do. Mm -hmm. So, if you feel that something's not quite right, really do have faith in yourself and be persistent, if necessary. Ask for a second opinion. And most importantly, if um, there's any suspicion that it could be a sarcoma, ask to be referred to a specialist sarcoma center before any tests are done, because they're the ones that really have got the knowledge to be able to manage uh, any suspicious sarcoma right from the outset. So be empowered because ultimately you've got the most to gain by being empowered.
0: Mm. Uh-huh. Uh, Mandy, what about those that have been diagnosed and what would your takeaway be for those those patients?
5: Yeah, I think number one, take each hour, each day, each week at a time. Don't look back because, um, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda is useless at this point. There's nothing you've done to cause this. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Nothing's too unimportant if it bothers you. But I would probably recommend, um, I think as everybody has said on this um, podcast, avoid Dr. Google.
0: <laughs> yep yep
5: um be kind to yourself we we all have good and bad days on this journey and both are absolutely natural and okay to allow yourself to have those kinds of days and i think the other thing that's really important is that it doesn't matter that you have a sarcoma it doesn't change who you are as a person you don't suddenly turn into the cancer just because (laughs) you've been diagnosed with cancer you as a person are still really really important it's your body your life don't be afraid to make the choices that work for you and retain who you are because that's that's the key of who you are as a person really important well said and i think finally that what i um i think finally what i'd say is you don't need to feel alone there is a wonderful sarcoma community out there who get it the support is available if you need it you only have to reach out and ask
0: for it yeah absolutely
5: uh, Mandy, how do you see the future of sarcoma in Australia? I think very positively. Um, I've seen significant change since 2012 when we first started then. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I go into the community, many more people are aware of what sarcoma is than when we started. So I'll go into a room and say how many people have um, heard of sarcoma, and I'm getting a lot of hands put it, put up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is it's happening, but there's an awful long way to go still. And while there is a huge will and an energy in trying to improve the holistic care for sarcoma patients, it won't change overnight. It's going to take national collaboration from everyone involved in sarcoma care along the whole journey. And it's also going to take significant, excuse me, and significant investment. But, uh, you know, when you look at breast cancer, they were once where we are now. And look where they are now. Absolutely. So um, I think if, you know, I'm confident we will get there too. Uh, one thing about the sarcoma community is that we're very tenacious, very persistent, mm-hmm. and we know it needs to be done.
1: Yeah. Yes,
0: yeah,
1: I, I know that from working with you over the last six weeks, and it is infectious. Um, Mandy, I would like to say on on behalf of the sarcoma community and myself and Whipper, the work that that Abby started and you've continued is so important, and we we are very lucky that uh, we've crossed paths with you, and we look forward to working with you and um, the foundation in the future.
5: Well, it's been a privilege and a pleasure for me to work with everyone involved in this collaboration, Uh, Tanya, yourselves, and all the patients Mm -hmm. and the clinicians and researchers who've put their time into this. It's just so exciting to see that collaboration.
0: Well done, Mandy. We send all our love.
5: Thank you. And you have a wonderful day. You too.
0: Thanks,
1: Mandy. Thank you. We'd like to welcome Associate Professor Georgia Halkett to the podcast. Welcome, Georgia. Thank
0: you. Georgia, thanks for finding the time. Uh, This is a podcast that Catherine's driving and uh, along with um, the Cooper Ice Braiding Foundation and also Sucker to Sarcoma, um, we've put together. We're proud to be involved and it's people like you giving up your time as well that we appreciate so much as we all go on this journey learning about this insidious disease and um, we chat to you today for a greater understanding. Um, Could you explain a little bit more about what attracted you to investigate the unmet needs of people diagnosed with sarcoma?
4: Yeah, so as you know, sarcoma is a rare cancer that has a large impact on patients and their families. However, very limited research has been conducted in the area of psychosocial needs and finding out what patients and carers need. And my work has previously been with other rare cancers such as brain cancer, and it was appropriate that we were also to look at sarcoma and find out what these patients need. And my clinical background in radiation therapy And I've previously treated younger and older people Mm -hmm. diagnosed with sarcoma in that work. And I've seen the huge impact it has on patients' lives and their experience is very different to other cancers. So my research interests stemmed from this. and wanting to understand patients' and carers' needs and improve their experience and and, and trying to uh, reduce distress levels.
1: Uh, Georgia, can you tell us about the research you've conducted, focusing on sarcoma incidence in WA and, and how it's managed?
4: Yeah, so the aim of this study was to determine the burden of sarcoma in terms of the incidence, the prevalence, and survival, and uh, health service use and costs of hospital services in WA. So we looked at the cancer registry and hospital um, morbidity and death registration data, and that was from in WA mm-hmm. from. 1982 to 2016. Um, so we looked at new sarcomas in the WA residence. Yes. And we made comparisons with other cancers such as breast cancer, colorectal, prostate and lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And for the period um, 2012 to 2016, uh, the annual incidence was 7.3 per 100,000 um, and the majority of these were soft tissue sarcoma. And the pre- prevalence has, for soft tissue sarcoma has increased over time whereas with bone sarcoma, it, it remained more stable. Interesting. And um, the cancer-related hospitalisations uh, cost an estimated $29.1 million Australian dollars over the start of study period, um, which is quite a frightening mm-hmm. amount. Yeah. And so it was quite interesting to do this study because nothing like this had been done before. And we found that although the, there was lower hospitalisation costs compared to other cancers, the average cost of health service use per person was higher for sarcoma than for breast cancer, right. colorect- or prostate cancer.
0: Right, okay. And I believe, Sorry. yeah, I see. Um, I believe there were sort of five key areas that um, came out of the research as well that you've done. Um, could you tell us some more about these?
4: Uh, yep, yeah, so in terms of unmet needs.
0: Yeah, yeah.
4: Yep, yeah, so the aim of that part of the study was to look at the unmet needs of patients diagnosed with sarcoma, and we interviewed patients, uh, carers, and health professionals. And we found the main areas where in terms of daily living, financial needs, lack of information, need for a community, and navigating the health system. So daily living, the um, participants needed help because they'd had surgery on their limbs or had them removed. Um, so they, needed, they had functional difficulties and needed assistance with errands mm-hmm. um, or just transport as well. And their ability to work was also affected uh, because they couldn't do everything that they used to be able to do. Um, And then in terms of financial needs, they had financial difficulties associated with sarcoma and they weren't able to get the support that they perhaps could have got from the government um, and also for their medications and that sort of thing. Um, So there was quite a lot of costs associated for the individual patients. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the lack of information, which I'm sure you've heard uh, throughout doing all of these podcasts. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, it is a big one. Um, So they had limited knowledge of sarcoma when they were diagnosed and they needed additional information about sarcoma and also the treatments and they didn't understand all of the information that was provided and it wasn't relevant to their individual situations in some cases Um, and they didn't know what to expect before treatment and they felt unprepared, Um, and and that's something that could be addressed in future research and developing programs for them. And then in terms of need for a community, because it's such a rare cancer, patients didn't have as much access to other people with the same cancer, and that was distressing for them. Mm -hmm. Um, They felt isolated, and and particularly for the younger people who didn't know, uh, like the people, teenagers, that sort of thing, they didn't have that contact with people similar age. Hmm. Um. So they wanted to connect with other people, and
0: makes sense. Just to try, it's important just to,
4: try to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they also felt it was important to hear about long-term survivorship experiences. Um, knowing that it wasn't a death sentence and that there was good outcomes for people was something that people highlighted as well. Uh, they also wanted help with navigating the healthcare system. Um, they wanted, um, I guess the individuals' lives care, and had. Um, difficulty accessing all the different health services and the role of the nurse was really important for them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And having access to rehab such as physio and OT as well and getting that access when they needed it was important. Um, And the young people uh, needed more, perhaps more support and closer coordination when they were transitioning from being a child to an adult within the health system.
0: God, so much to go through. You can imagine if you're a yeah. teenager, you're dealing with not only you know turning from a boy into a man, but then you've got this horrible thing that you need to go through a very challenging time.
1: Mm, very much so. Georgia, can you tell us about what delays in diagnosis participants described?
4: Yes, yeah, so there was four main areas that patients, health professionals and carers talked about. It was in relation to the patient perceptions of symptoms, mm-hmm. difficulties of diagnosis, lack of experience, and availability of the health services. So in terms of patient perceptions of symptoms, um, the patients often misattributed their symptoms to other things, such as perhaps um, body changes or sporting injuries, like um, some participants associated with other sports like snowboarding or something that Mm -hmm. they'd been doing and then they thought they'd injured themselves rather than it being a symptom of cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't perceive their symptoms as urgent and, and wait, waited until it became um, more noticeable before they went and saw someone, so they tried to ignore it. Um, and the site may also shape how the perceived need to see the doctor. And, and I guess the younger participants were concerned um, if it was in their genital area, for example, they weren't going to present um, because it's quite confronting for them.
1: Yes, yep. I bet.
4: Yeah. And so I guess um, further education for the community is needed to improve earlier symptom recognition and to prompt medical consultation in the different age groups as well mm-hmm. um, and then in terms of lack of experience the health professionals don't see sarcoma very often so that was um meant that they wouldn't be able to pick it up in terms of diagnosing it sometimes um so because they haven't had experience with sarcoma before so if they weren't specializing in sarcoma then they weren't Health professionals had difficulty picking it up and we'd be looking for other symptoms first, other right, reasons
0: right. first. Georgia, that's one of the most confronting things as we continue to talk about this. I mean, there wouldn't be one person you don't know that doesn't have a bit of a niggle, whether it's in the back mm-hmm. or the knee or the shoulder or something stiff getting out of bed. And it's that, you know, you you. you scared and confronted by stories of people that haven't seen the right professional help and therefore end up in a situation um, where they're challenged by this. But it's just a great reminder that if something doesn't seem right or it hangs around for a bit longer than you normally expected to actually act on it.
4: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. That certainly came out in the study and the stories of of not presenting it early enough.
1: Um, Georgia, from your findings, in what direction would you like to see this research continue?
4: Um, and so in terms of delays in diagnosis, I think there needs to be further campaigns and research to raise awareness leading to early detection, and that would be both for health professionals and for community. Mm-hmm. Um, so broader public needs to know about it, but also it needs to be implemented into more into the medical curriculum um, so that health professionals know more about it as well. And I think there needs to be more research in the area as well to improve adherence to guidelines and also to develop programs to help improve that adherence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of unmet needs, uh, we need to do more in terms of a national study looking at unmet needs over time for participants and we need to look at uh, research priorities and future directions with health professionals to work out the best way forward in terms of developing programs to support patients and carers. Mm-hmm. And we sh- I think there's also room to develop um, recent research on support groups and programs to ensure that patients have access to other patients who are having similar experience. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's also um, a need to develop more information that's specific to different types of sarcoma and to make sure that patients have access to that sort of information from a pre-diagnosis right through to survivorship. And there's also area to do research and develop programs around returning to work and supporting patients to get back to work Mm -hmm. and back to their normal lives once they've had treatment.
0: Um, Georgia, finally, we've been asking this question of people. If you had the opportunity to speak with uh, the Honourable Greg Hunt, uh, what would you ask him, our health minister, what message would you like to to share with him regarding sarcoma?
4: So it's a rare cancer and it needs attention, obviously, Um, and it's, better for patients and carers if we can support them better. And also this will help to reduce the cost of sarcoma. Um, And there's plenty of research opportunities and the need for research in terms of the psychosocial area and that we could develop and support more programs, develop more support programs for patients and carers. Um, So we've done the initial research to find out what the needs are, but now we need to develop programs to support them. Um, An example in other areas of cancer is brain cancer, which is also rare cancer. Um, The brain cancer mission has just put funding into that and now there's opportunity to develop support programs in that area and it would be fantastic if sarcoma had a similar opportunity um, for these patients and carers as well. Great. And I think a national approach is really important. And even if um, with the current COVID situation, it's difficult and funding might be impacted, but it's still important to support patients with sarcoma and their carers and that we can still do research in this area. To improve the care that's provided absolutely no that's great
1: crucial
0: message crucial message
4: georgia thank you so much for your time and thank you for being part of the podcast thank you for the opportunity and and thank you to Socrates to sarcoma with for working with us and i look forward to more research in this area as well
0: absolutely we're all working towards it thanks georgia thank you
4: thank you
1: uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, David
6: and Emmy, how are you both today? Well, thank you very much. Um, it's nice to be out, <laughs> yep. given the cured climate. So, um, no, absolutely. It's fantastic to be here and talk more about the research, particularly now it's awareness month to really get this out into the open and also show people what we are actually doing, uh, from the research side. Cause I can imagine that that's, um, behind doors uh, most of the time. But yeah, it's it's an awesome opportunity. So thank you very, very much.
7: Welcome. Welcome, Professor David. Yeah, it's lovely to be here.
6: Can
1: I ask you, David, to explain a little bit about your role?
7: Yes, I'm Director of the Kinghorn Cancer Centre on the St. Vincent's campus, but Head of the Cancer Theme of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. From a sarcomic perspective, I've been a medical oncologist for more than 20 years and have spent most of that time Working on the field, uh, in the field of sarcomas and treating sarcoma patients and trying to find solutions for them. And uh, I've got a deep interest in genomics and precision medicine.
1: And and Dr. Emmy, can you explain a little bit about what you do?
6: Yes, absolutely. So um, I'm a senior scientist working at Children's Cancer Institute, so uh, affiliated with the University of New South Wales as well. Um, I'm originally from the Netherlands, but I was really recruited here and wanted to work here to build on the uh, zero childhood cancer program. So I'll tell a bit more about that um, in a bit. But the aim of my research is really to identify novel specific treatments for young high-risk sarcoma patients. And that's been uh, the topic of my research for the past 10 years. Wow. Isn't
0: that brilliant? David, when you look at um, sarcoma as a a cancer, correct me and stop me if I'm stumbling or I'm incorrect in any terms I use, um, why why is it different? I mean, obviously all cancers are different. Some are easier to treat than others and we have a greater success with other cancers. Tell us about sarcoma and and the biggest challenge.
7: Well, uh, there are multiple. It's not just one, one hit. It's a triple whammy, really. It's, they're rare collectively. All psychomas together amount to about 1% of all cancers. They affect the young. So they're devastating when they affect uh, families. You can imagine it's more than just the individual that's affected. Um, it ripples throughout the c- community and they're, uh, because of their rarity and their, um, the fact they affect the young, they're also extremely heterogeneous. Um, what does that mean? Well, that means is there are fifty different subtypes even within that one oh, percent. So yeah. the problem is actually of ultra rare entities. All of cancers together fit the World Health Organization definition of rarity. Uh, it is less than six per one hundred thousand, and many of these subgroups are ultra rare, one per million. You know, they're rocking horse manure problem. Right.
0: So, I mean, I know they talk about, we always talk about sarcoma as being rare. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, when we say rare, it often means that the um, funding hasn't been allocated to it. And it also means the study hasn't been done
7: on the size required. Um, is that the general understanding? Yeah. And it's particularly a problem over the past um, you know 70 years of medical research where we really haven't uh, done any clinical trials on the basis of a scientific understanding of the cancer. We've just tried something and seen if it worked. And when you do that, you need to have large numbers of people to be confident that it's. It's not just a random chance effect. But now we're moving to an era where I think we're beginning to see the, the day of cancers like sarcomas coming into their own because we're individualizing and personalizing treatment. Right. That is, we're taking each person as the denominator and asking, based on a molecular analysis of your tumor, what's the best treatment for you? We're not asking that of 4,000 people to decide what's good for you. Mm-hmm. We're asking about what's right for you. Sure, sure.
1: Emmy, can I ask why you were drawn
6: to work in the sarcoma space in the first place? Yes, absolutely. So it all started actually when I started my PhD. So I studied biomedical sciences. I was interested in cancer research, and that's really what I wanted to pursue. But I didn't have a particular cancer type that I was, uh, that really uh, grabbed my attention. So when I started my PhD, that was actually. On finding novel treatments for osteosarcomas and Ewing sarcomas, so I heard about the term sarcoma before, but not really about mm. these subtypes and what they actually mean. Um, so during the course of my project, because um, it was very um, clinically oriented as well, I got to know a couple of patients, um, including one girl. She was around my age um, when I uh, when I met her, so she had a Ewing sarcoma. Um, when I met her, um, she already, so it was in her ankle. She already had her foot removed, gone through multiple chemos, but it, it didn't let, it didn't get her down. She was still determined to, to go for it and tackle the cancer. But in the end, she still didn't make it. And that really, at least for me, made it put a face to the sarcoma. You know, it's not, you're not just working in the lab, um, to, to cure the, the, the cells that you're working on. You really are trying to find a cure for patients. And that's really the moment that I decided, okay, this is a cancer type I want to devote my career on. And wow. ever since, um, I've been working on those type of tumors. So really the sarcomas that affect um, the young.
2: Because
0: mm-hmm. when you talk about um, zero childhood cancers, yes, is sarcoma the biggest challenge we have?
6: It's one of the definitely one of the major challenges we have. So it's actually the second largest cohort within the trial, uh, which just reflects how aggressive these tumors are. So the zero sheltered cancer program at the moment. so it's a precision medicine, uh, precision medicine platform aimed to identify targeted treatments for patients with the highest risk. So at the moment, it's aimed at patients with a less than 30% survival with a pediatric cancer. Wrong. Um, and we enroll patients up to 25, uh, 25 years of age. Um, and we have quite a number of sarcoma patients, um, in there that have had all of the standard treatments, um, despite that still relapse. So it's a huge problem. Um, within the program, um, we look at the genomics of the tumor to identify a target to to action upon that we can use a drug against. But we also, uh, if we indeed get the fresh material, we try to grow the tumor in the lab. So we can test about 125 different drugs on that patient sample without having to test it um, in the patient. But still... Um, we, we, we're getting there and for about 70% of those patients we can give some sort of treatment recommendation. It also means for 30% we're still not uh, there and for the ones that do get a recommendation, we're not always sure whether the target we find is the real, true and only driver. So there's still so much work. It looks promising. We have amazing results but we're not there yet. So, it, yeah, it's, it's definitely a great challenge we, uh, we face with the sarcomas.
0: It seems to be, in my mind and a few of the people we've spoken to, very quickly when you know how aggressive and devastating this cancer can be, you think to yourself from a very simplistic point of view, well, if it's in the foot, cut the foot off, problem solved, foot gone. But it seems to be particular the way it spreads. Um, it seems to be the idea of just cutting that part off doesn't seem to be the solution.
6: No. The is main, this
0: something particular about how it spreads?
6: The main issue is, um, I reckon, the time of diagnosis. When you have pain in your knee or in your foot, most people do not have a sarcoma. The problem is the patients that do often walk around with it for a longer time. And by the time that it's diagnosed, um, it can already be spread sometimes. Already spread, but you cannot detect it with the current um, uh, detection method. Sure. So, if if the tumor is truly localized and indeed you can cut off can. the foot and you would be cured, that would be fantastic. I mean, you still lose your foot, and we still need better treatments. But at least the patient is cured. Still here. But unfortunately, disease spreading um, is is a mm. real real problem here. Also because these tumors are often diagnosed when it's already later stage. Um, Because it's so rare.
7: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, David, what are the overriding challenges you face?
7: Well, uh, in any rare disease, you can only make progress through research. Um, As I said a little earlier, I think research methods have radically transformed in the past 20 years. Um, The chance of getting a response to, a 21st century clinical trial in a cancer patient is six times as high as it was in the 1990s when I began my medical oncology career. And that means that uh, currently the irony is that our best treatment for metastatic sarcoma in the clinic has a lower response rate than the chance of response going on to a trial like the ones that uh, Emmy is talking about and that we're running. So you've got a better chance of getting a response in a research trial than you have outside a trial The problem is that uh, our systems for running those trials are only just beginning to adapt to that new opportunity. So what I would like to see happen is that every sarcoma patient who needs it can get onto a trial that's based around science uh, and uh, that we can learn from every patient so that we're not spending 10 times as long because we're studying one-tenth of the number of patients that we could learn from. It will benefit the patients right here and now, but it will also benefit the patients still to come if we can accelerate progress.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Do you feel that a cure is imminent?
7: I feel as though year on year we've seen massive improvements in survival. You have to be old like me to remember what it was like in the 1990s and 1980s. The survival from cancer overall in 1970 was less than 50%. It's now in this country closer to 70%. Yeah, that's broad, that's cancer Cancer in cancer. general, yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's uh, amazing. And in pediatrics, uh, in pediatric cancers, the survival in the 1960s might have been between 10 and 20%. It's now closer to 90%. So we made massive improvements through research. And that progress, the good news is not only has that progress occurred, but there's been an exponential growth in the rate of research thanks to the powers of computers, the commitments of societies Mm -hmm. to make a difference, communications and robotics and all these other scientific developments that have enhanced the power of research to reach the individual patient. So one would expect, having seen that degree of progress over the past 40 years, we'd expect similar progress over the next 40 years Does that mean we'll cure cancer? I think we should aspire to cure cancer. I think we should aspire to cure cancer by using our current treatments as effectively as possible. Surgery is still the mainstay of cure of all sarcomas. Cutting it out. Uh, Yeah, exactly, as Emmy described. There are cancers, sarcomas. I just want to make a point. of We touched on before about Ewing sarcoma. You don't cure Ewing sarcoma with surgery because it's inherently metastatic. It's what we call micrometastatic. There are sarcomas that you can cure. Osteosarcoma, about one in five people can be cured with surgery alone, but that is never the case with Ewings. You always need additional treatments. And those additional treatments have evolved over the past 20 years to add to surgery. And the treatments that are to come will add to where we are today. Uh, getting rid of that last one-third of patients that we're still losing, I think that's the challenge. And I think it'll be because of early detection, better surgery, more effective drug treatments, and that will turn it from a lethal disease hopefully into one that's a chronic disease. That's the thing. I mean, there's many
0: parts of what we're doing and why we're raising the awareness and and donations. But if I said to you, Dave, I ring you, Dave, how are you, mate? You're not going to believe it. I've just found a billion
7: dollars. I'm going to give it to you for sarcoma. What would that do? Oh, it could be a complete, absolute transformative game, game changer. for ev- It would be. With a, mil- with a billion dollars, every single patient would be sequenced to understand why they got the cancer in the first place. That's a question we never ask. We should be asking it every time somebody right. young gets a cancer and to sequence their tumor to understand what makes it tick and then to bring the drugs that are being developed worldwide to bring them to Australia so we can deliver them to the patients on the basis of the information we learn. I'd be turbocharging basic research like the research that Emmy is doing because what we understand from human studies of patients tells us what is important but not why. And we need to use basic research to understand the mechanisms that ultimately we need to understand them or we can't develop drugs to them. And uh, for me, that that ecosystem that brings studies of human patients and radically advances them and then combines it by turbocharging basic research and then brings the benefits back in real time while the patient is still in front of you, ideally... So you can benefit the patient that's contributing to the research. That is the vision for the future. That's how I'd spend that billion dollars. I'd love
0: to be able to make that call. We'll work on that.
7: Have you got a billion dollars?
0: We've got a nice um, house. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Not at this uh, stage. <laughs> no, no if I do ring Dave, you'll know.
1: <laughs> got that
7: radio contract on back
1: the, on the bat phone. Yeah. You know, I think.
7: I think what I'd like to say, which I needs to be said, is that. There's been a pessimism about cancer. You know, it's a, it's got, it's more than just another disease. A huge it stigma. It's got stigma. It's the word malignancy has got associations, connotations of a moral kind. It's, it relates to malignancy and evil, you might say. Mm. Um, but it also produces pessimism because we haven't really felt as though research is anything more than playing guinea pig, you know, for patients. But that's just not true. This is not the time for pessimism or fatalism. If we, there are things that we can do. We know we can do. It's just a question of the resources to be able to do it and we know that the patients are out there and there'll be more patients tomorrow and the day after that we need to change the system fundamentally i think and i think not only um is that a desire it's one that can be realized
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely you just always wonder, don't you? You think if if there was unlimited resources, resources. I mean, I remember reading a magazine. It was front cover of Time magazine, and it was how to cure cancer, and it spoke about cutting through the red tape and the uh, organisation in the states um, stand up to cancer or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite influential, and it was just being able to drop egos. All the red tape and the protocol and what was required, and they'd managed to get you know drugs from trial uh, to 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 use within 12 months, which used to take 10 years type stuff. So those were some of the major advances that were being made um, through uh, you know just just I suppose taking the corporate side out of it as well, you know, which is a big player. There's a lot of money in it. Um, but you know, things were things were happening. You know, huge advances. I'm more optimistic than you,
7: actually, Michael. Um, you know, I think the corporate side's got an essential role to play. We 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 stigmatise um, uh, drug companies because they're driven by corporate commercial motives. Mm. But we also don't do ourselves any favours. Drug companies uh, for drug development. Spend a billion plus dollars, $2.4 billion and more on developing every single drug that gets to market. And they, those are coming out of the superannuation funds and the mm. private equity firms that invest our, our retirement savings, hoping to give a return to us. It's not them. It's actually us and the system that we Driving create. It. It's a reality. And there are model systems of societies that don't depend upon private enterprise. And not all of those are as desirable as we might imagine. Mm. So the question is not whether one should get rid of companies or pharmaceutical, but whether we're optimally engaging with them, because mm. they're the only ones with the drugs. And I think the government in a single payer system like Australia is uniquely poised to create a a, a system in which we can attract those companies from all over the world to do their research in Australia. Improving patient survival, stimulating the economy at a Mm -hmm. time when that's badly needed, turning health into a wealth issue rather than a cost to the system, and encouraging the government to take advantage of Australia's remarkable transitions to make us the leading cancer research uh, environment in the world. Mm. Better than the U.S.? better than the UK currently. We're uniquely poised. I'm very optimistic. That's great. It's that. fantastic.
1: I love your optimism. And you looked at me when you said we were better than the UK. Thanks, David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so
0: much better than the UK. No, so much better. No baseline. No, do uh,
1: excuse me. I live here. Um, now, we, we had a question, where, which was, what are the major issues standing between your remarkable research and eventual breakthrough? Would, would you say that you've covered that? It, it really is funds? And I won't ask you if that's, you know, kind of what you guys you guys If it is the
7: answer. answer. Yes. Yes. Yes, I think yes. so. And go- getting governments to align. Go- governments play an enormous role, and this is outside of funds. Government rearrangement of its regulatory processes to encourage the approval of drugs, getting drugs more accessible. It's not just a question of funds. It's got to do with the, the, the way that the public health system has operated, and it's clearly increasing the costs of drug development to a point where, ironically, it becomes affordable when we have to pay for the drugs when they come out the other end. And we need to rethink that if we'd have a sustainable model for science-led clinical care. Mm-hmm.
1: Can I ask you both what the importance of genomic profiling in cancer patients?
6: I think maybe you're the experts. Um,
7: okay, expert so with this
6: one. Yeah.
7: yeah, So um, everything that's living has a blueprint That dictates how that living thing grows, behaves. Everything that it interacts with in the environment, its life trajectory is determined by that blueprint. And that blueprint is what we call a genetic code. It's true of humans. The fertilized egg that brings a mother and father's DNA together to create a new life gets replicated through to 70 trillion different cells that make up the average human. Perfectly copied. It's a miracle. And that blueprint uh, is incredibly complicated. There are 3 billion positions, 6 billion letters in the book of life that is that genetic code. And every single letter is copied faithfully across those 70 trillion cells and over a 70-year lifespan. When you think about it in those terms, there is no human being that could copy that accurately. Uh, So it's It's extraordinary that that code gets corrupted. And when it gets corrupted, The behavior of the cell whose code is corrupted changes. For example, by taking out the wrong letter in those six billion letters, suddenly you get an instruction to grow, to spread, to disregard your host, to disregard why you're there in the human to beat, to cause the heart to beat or the muscles to contract. You just start to grow. You become a parasite within the human body. Now, if you could understand the changes that cause a normal cell to go rogue and cause a cancer, if you could read that code, you would understand what needs to be corrected to fix it. Because what's going on in that cell is unique to that cell. So many of our treatments have been non-specific; They affect the cancer cell, but they affect the bone marrow. They affect the gut lining of the gut. Sure. They affect the hair. Because they don't just affect the cancer cell. But if you could read the cancer code for the things that are unique to the cancer that cause the cancer to be a cancer, to distinguish it from a normal cell, in principle, you have the secret to unlocking targeted therapies that will affect the cancer more effectively than ever before, with fewer side effects on the normal cell than ever before.
0: When you read about genome mapping um, of a child, which might become standard for every child born in the the future... uh, that can give you an understanding or a predetermined um, outlook on on how that body might react down the track based on family history. Is that correct? Am I? Am I? did that make any sense? What I'm saying? I've only read basic articles which talk about being able to understand what the body, where that body might be in 50 years' time, and what they're predetermined to yeah. possible outcomes.
7: If I'm throwing key words out there. <laughs> Well, there are two types of genetic code that you're talking about we should separate so the first is a code that's present in the cancer that causes a cancer to be different from the genes that we inherit from our parents but the second are the genes that we inherit which may increase the chance of getting cancer so if you sampled my blood right now i don't have a cancer but we might understand what my chances of developing a cancer are but that's different from taking somebody who's developed a cancer taking a bit of their tumor mm-hmm. and saying which are the letters that are now changed. And both sets of information can be read like the reading of a book to understand what can be done to detect cancers early and what can be done to treat a cancer that's already there. Okay, okay. And so the miracle that's happened in the past decade is the radical transformation of our ability to read that text. It's like the Rosetta Stone in the 19th century, the thing that allowed us to understand ancient languages because we had a translation apparatus. Mm. Gave us insights into history. We've in the past ten years. There's been the Rosetta Stone of genomics, and that means that right now, people like Emmy and people like the people working in our programs can read a patient's genetic code to explain why they got the cancer, and also what's going on within their cancer that we can use to treat them. And that's something that we can bring into the clinic today with in less than ten years. God, and that's some of the work you do, Emmy.
6: It's uh, it definitely builds upon it. So what we have in the zero program. We do also read the genetic code, and when we find, um, like David said, it's so well established, if we do find a true, what we call driver aberration, and there is a drug directed against it, we already call the treating clinician to say, I'm just going to uh, name one example, say an fusion, we have a targeted drug available. When we find something like that, we call the treating uh, clinician. So that's absolutely fantastic. Um, the problem with it is that for some of the patients, particularly some of the, what we call translocation associated sarcomas, we don't always find a targetable aberration uh, that we have a drug against in their genome. So reading the genome of a cancer is widely established and has you, um, well, has been very successful for certain cancers, but not for uh, for all of the cancers. And that's why within zero we also look one level higher, so how the genome how the blueprint is actually read upon and how um, um, this eventually um, asserts that the building blocks of the cancer cell, which are the proteins, are mm-hmm. actually formed. So the drugs that we currently have, if we uh, if we say we have a fault in a gene, when we have a drug against that, it's often targeted at the protein of that uh, gene. So the real um, sure. uh, effector, so to speak. So that's um, that's really what my research is looking uh, into. So identify those cancers because we have within zero, we have their blueprint, uh, we have their genome. I'm looking at the ones, okay... At the moment, we don't find a uh, something we can act upon here. How about we look at the protein level and we look at the proteins that are actually activated? Because if we know which ones are actually switched on, those are likely the real drivers. Um, in many of the cases, if we would do the same uh, with patients that have a driver genomic aberration, we will find that that protein is indeed activated as well. So it's it's a proof of concept right. uh, there that it's actually driving. But we also have cases where we do not find a genomic aberration in that tumour, whereas the target on the protein level is actually activated. Um, And that's a novel line of research, so it's complementary, and what we want to do is build this comprehensive picture of what is going on uh, within the cancer cell. the proteomics site is more um, in a development stage it's rapidly developing and uh, fossil proteomics is even harder because you need more material so it's not at the moment that we can routinely implement it that's why we're not doing it it's more in a research setting but it's it's very much uh, has fantastic potential to identify novel targets in patients that we uh, currently miss um including the zero program so it it's very a complementary approach because in the end we want to have a program um, uh, that is capable of identifying a targeted treatment for everyone we enroll so we look at multiple different levels if it's not the genomics we look one level higher we look another level higher or with drug screens because um, that's the other thing um, and a couple of patients that we have in the program now uh, Where we were uh, successful in performing a drug screen, Uh, we see hits, so we see sensitivity to a certain uh, targeted compound that we can use in the clinic, so the cells actually die. We have no idea why that's the case, so we have the the genome of that Uh patient. We do know um, a bit about the expression, but we don't really understand. why that patient is responding. So we want to look at the activation status and really through research identify the mechanism of action because if we know the mechanism and we report that back to the treating clinician as well, we do not only say we have a drug hit in our laboratory, but we actually know we can explain why this is working and that can in turn also uh Get the the clinical sites and Mm -hmm. pharma more interested in designing a clinical trial so that, again, if we have a clinical trial, it's not just testing a drug on a lot of different patients, but that we can uh, really pinpoint it and tailor it to a certain flaw, a certain defect um, in the tumor. Wow. Mm
0: -hmm. Fantastic work.
6: Mm, I feel a bit inadequate, do
4: you?
0: Not me. <laughs> no, not for one second. I'm doing a
1: really good job. i thinking about doing another, doing another degree that's mm. not media studies, which does not really help
6: <laughs> anybody. Oh, dear. <laughs> no, but that's the thing. We need to get it in the open, right. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. It needs that's to be recognized. If, we, if I'm only sitting in the lab and yeah. um, doing the experiments, you know, we don't... We don't get funding. We don't, you know. We need the patients. We need the samples. We That's need true. the team. We need we need everything to get it going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we are so doing Amy's something.
1: We're we're, great. Yeah, i can't making a
6: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, David. Could you please uh, tell us more about the forthcoming interleukin twenty three clinical study at the Garvan Institute of Medical Research? For those listening, that it could help.
7: Yes. Yeah, so. Um, this is directed at, uh, at uh, a new aspect of immune types of treatments. Um, your listeners are probably aware of the radical transformation in our ability to harness the immune system to get rid of cancers. It's been transformative, for example, for cancers like melanoma and lung cancer and some other cancer types. At this point, those treatments that have been so effective in those diseases have not translated into benefits for patients with sarcoma, at least not at the rates that we're seeing them in diseases like melanoma. So what we've spent the past five or six years trying to do is to understand whether there are new opportunities that the immune system could use. The immune system is immensely complex. There are multiple molecules, each of which, or to think about them almost as locks, there are multiple locks that could be used to open the door to benefit patients. And we're trying different, uh, through research, we're trying different keys to those locks. A colleague of mine called Maya Kansara, Dr. Maya Kansara, has been running a program which has taken studies in humans which have identified this mysterious gene, interleukin-23, which appears to be altered slightly in a way that increases the risk of osteosarcoma or bone cancer in, uh, in, uh, in patients. It's not known what it did uh, in terms of cancer. It was a complete mystery. So what Maya did was to use a mouse model to show that interleukin-23 was uh, played a critical role in osteosarcoma development and with colleagues in uh, the Queensland Institute of Medical Research, actually in sarcomas in general. And in fact, it turns out that if you look at many cancers, you see interleukin-23, it's ghostly signs there behind a lot of cancer Is that parts. right? So it's actually a quite broadly important molecule, we think, in the immune system. Interleukin, by the way, means a molecule that sends signals between immune cells which is why I mentioned immunotherapy. Now, the beautiful thing from Meyer's research was that in addition to showing elegantly that it played what we call a rate-limiting role in tumor development in a living system, we have drugs. Because interleukin-23, for the past 20 years, has been known to be an important molecule in driving psoriasis, the skin condition. It's not a cancer. The drugs have been developed to target interleukin-23 in people with very severe uh, psoriasis, and it's been remarkably effective because psoriasis is a condition of increased inflammation by the immune system. So we've just asked the simple question: Okay, so it works in mice. So what? We need mm-hmm. better treatments for patients with metastatic sarcoma. Let's ask whether these drugs, which work in a benign skin condition, might be a game changer for patients with sarcoma. And that was just a matter of testing. It's now just a question of running the trial. So we have a program called the MOST program, which is uh, screened 2,500 Australians with advanced cancer and will screen another 4,000 more over the next few years. And we're using that as a vehicle to test whether these interleukin 23 antagonists will help patients with sarcoma. It's the first study of its kind worldwide. It's testing a completely novel approach to the immunotherapy of sarcomas. And uh, we're, well... No point stopping at the mouse. We may as well get on and find out whether it helps our patients. So were you saying, sorry, does everybody have that gene? Yes. Everyone yeah.
0: has that gene. Correct. But it seems to be that, that gene is associated with where the cells mutate. Is that what you're saying? If I completely misread it?
7: No. So the amazing thing about cancer is that probably cancers, sorry about this, I don't know to depress you, but all of us are developing cancers all the time, which our immune system down. and clips out oh, I just I did know miss- that. Did you? No. It's definitely an interesting, that's why the immune therapies work because our immune systems are actually playing critical roles in the background. Constantly. Um, all the time, prob- probably. Um, so what we think is happening with interleukin-23 is that there are, sometimes the inflammation that occurs around, for example, a, a muscle cell or a bone cell can actually drive its progression to become cancerous. In the same way that psoriasis is a chronic inflammatory condition affecting the skin. So interleukin 23 seems to play a role in chronic inflammation that may drive tumor, tumor development. So the beautiful thing about that is. We don't have to restore the immune system, which is a terribly difficult thing to do in a controlled way. Those drugs are so toxic because they cause fevers and sweats when you inject these highly potent molecules into a patient. What we're doing is we're taking out the function of a gene which seems to be required for tumor development. Right. that's a, Taking out something that is dispensable for normal function and will stop tumor progression is the holy grail of drug development, really. And that's what interleukin-23, that we know it's safe because it's being used for psoriasis and the mm-hmm. skin condition. Now we know we're going to ask the question, does it work in in patients with bone sarcoma, uh, like Cooper had, mm-hmm. and also with soft tissue sarcoma. Oh,
1: that's exciting. Yeah, it's great
7: progress, isn't it? Yeah, I would say one of the other interesting things about that story is that the studies that came out showing that uh, that pathway was important in human cancers, was in 2013, which is only seven years ago. We commenced our basic research studies about four years ago. And when we published the paper, we've been able to move within 12 months to getting a trial open. And that compression of timelines is science in the service of our patients. Starts with a patient, find something new, test it in the lab, and then go back as fast as you can to the patients who are literally dying for you to get those uh, mm-hmm. discoveries into the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. You've
1: got a tricky word now for Emmy. Well, oh, do I? Yes.
0: Emmy, <laughs> can you tell us more about your groundbreaking – don't jump in, I've got it. Okay. Phosophenomenic – protonomic trial? Yes. Yes. Give him a hand. Go on. <laughs> Phosphoproteomics. Phosphoproteomics.
6: <laughs> yes. It's, it's a mouthful, and I always say it's just a fancy name. Researchers, as you know, like to use fancy words for their techniques, looking at the activation signature of a molecule.
0: Say it again for me. Phospho.
6: Phospho. Phospho so that, that means...
0: Uh, Oh,
6: Yeah, uh, activated Mm -hmm. uh, um, in in late term. And proteomics is looking at the protein level. So the building blocks of cancer. Right, right. Um, So, yes. So, what it essentially means is that um, in my research, um, I'm investigating not just how the building blocks of cancers are actually formed and whether they are there. Um, I really want to know whether they switched on or not, because again, if they are switched on, it gives us much more reason uh, to think that this is actually a, a driver of the disease. The other thing is um, we shouldn't just look at um, one protein at the time. So just like we're doing with the genome, that we're reading everything. Also on the proteomic side, fossil proteomics, I want to know everything. I want to know which molecules are switched on to get a comprehensive picture, the landscape, if you uh, if you like of the activated signaling molecules uh, in the cancer so that we can uh, rationally base our targeted treatments um, on that. So we've done already preliminary research um, on that. So um, we screened a a panel of about 20 sarcoma cell lines with a phosphoproteomics approach before Um, and in one of the cell lines we identified a driver aberration. So that cell line, it was from a synovial sarcoma patient originally, had exceedingly high levels of a protein that we call ELK. Elk inhibitors are already available, uh, used for uh, many other different cancers. And if if this cell line, if this would have been a patient sample, um, all of the tests we did in the laboratory uh, showed that this uh, uh, patient cell line sample was responsive to therapy. So we tested it in the lab. When we treated the cells cultured with this elk inhibitor, they stopped growing. When we put the tumor into the mouse to form a whole tumor, all of the treated mice uh, showed regression wow. of the tumor. And that's, that was an aberration that at the time, with standard um, uh, genomics approaches, wouldn't have been picked up. Um, so that really shows the potential that we have. It also... Um, uh, emphasizes the needs for personalized medicine because we don't find such a aberration in every patient. So uh, we need to, again, address every patient and every tumor specifically, and particularly with sarcomas, David already mentioned, they're so heterogeneous. Um, there's so many different subtypes and even within a subtype, like one Ewing sarcoma is not the other Ewing sarcoma. We really need to investigate them and um yeah spend all of her time and efforts in individualizing the patient and the tumor and see what works for this patient on um on this tumor mm-hmm. at this moment uh, in time And again, within the, yeah, because my research is really based on the Zero Childhood Cancer Program. Within Zero, we already have this wealth of genomics data. We also have it one layer higher, um, uh, which we call the RNA. That's how the genome is actually read. But what I'm building in is the fossil proteomic site. So really see which ones are actually switched on? And can we utilize that to come up with actionable targets in this 30% that we at the moment cannot give a uh, treatment recommendation?
1: <laughs> uh, for those who may be interested in your work, how does a patient enroll in a clinical study? I'll ask you, David.
7: Well, so the clinician that's treating the patient is obviously critical here. Um, it's, it, it's such a technical field, medicine, and research even more so, that for a patient to navigate that and interpret it is, with all the wealth of information on the internet, much of it very confusing and and intimidating, to be frank. It's very hard to be able to act upon it in a way that you feel confident. That's the role of the clinician. So clinicians tend to operate, um, are often operating within ad- advanced networks. Uh, certainly in the pediatric community, there are half a dozen major cancer centers in the country that treat all children with cancer uh, or thereabouts and so those networks are very closely interrelated and they know about the prism program and if they have a patient who falls into the high risk category they will refer the patient onto this uh, into this trial through that mechanism for our own programs which focus upon uh, adult p- patients over the age of 18 with cancer we have the same mechanisms, but uh, we have an outreach service because those patients are treated at hundreds of institutions throughout the country. We have the problem of reaching, particularly into rural and regional areas where 25% of Australians live and die. Uh, we need to find ways of taking the miracles of science out of the ivory tower and democratizing it. So we've developed innovative methods of um, consenting and getting patients onto the program by the telephone and using. Uh, mail to ship samples around to get them tested so that the last thing we want to do is have a patient who's got metastatic cancer traveling 400 kilometers from regional New South Wales to a center to get at least just the test done. Mm. And then we, um, from there, if we find an opportunity for treatment, we then connect up that patient with the available treatments throughout the 450 trials which are going on within the Australian Cancer Care System. Um, and so hopefully we turn the test into something that actually makes a difference for the patient in front of us. Does that answer your question? Yes,
1: yes. Yeah, definitely. So rather than... um you know, if someone's listening, rather than them trying to reach out, they do it through their
7: clinician. We're very happy to be emailed directly and mm-hmm. very frequently we get emails. And what we do is we provide the contact details for the clinician because sometimes the clinician isn't within these major cancer centers. Mm-hmm. And so to leave, to make the clinician aware that there is an option for their patient that they may not have realized to this point is perfectly right to reach out to us and we can respond with how to take part in the program. Fantastic. Yeah.
6: Thank you. Absolutely. So if I can also build upon that. So one of the main issues, at least that that I'm facing is um, with the Zero Childhood Cancer Program, it is open uh, to patients up to 25 years of age. Um, And that's what I realized a lot of people in the pediatric setting don't, um, not always uh, grasp. So particularly with the sarcoma subtypes affecting uh, the the adolescents or the a bit older children so to speak 16 plus like the bone sarcomas they can definitely be eligible um and the treating clinician needs to be aware that this is a trial um to which the Up patient to 25 year olds can exa- yes, exactly exactly part. and um i've been contacted a couple of times from patients um that their treating clinician uh, perhaps was unaware that this could have been um, an option. So, it's up to 25 years of age uh, for any type of cancer. Um, we do consider older patients if they have a childhood cancer diagnosis, uh, but that has to be, um, um, yeah, uh, the study coordinator has to make the call whether the patient is then eligible or not. But it has to come from the treating clinician to us. So, like David also said, happy to be uh, contacted on that. But uh, for the patients that are listening, I really want them to make sure that their treating clinician is aware mm-hmm. um, of this program and double check whether they have uh, assessed whether that could be an option. The other thing is, is that um, um, the Zero program, it's called PRISM. So, Zero is PRISM um, at the moment is open for the high risk patients so less than 30 percent survival however it's received a major funding boost so over the coming years it will be open uh, eventually to every uh, patient's childhood cancer wow. patient in Australia um, so that's over the course of the over the next years so that will go in a phased approach but again keep it. it doesn't stop at 16 it's enrolled up to 25 years of age.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, quick message for the health minister, Greg Hunt. What would you say?
7: Well, I would say, first of all, he's been visionary in his support for genomic Mm -hmm. medicine through the Genomic Health Futures Mission and the Medical Research Futures Fund. And keep going. You know, I think there's so much that we could do if we receive the support. And we know we have to take a, we have to understand the realities of our society, our economy. There's more than just we're talking about something that isn't just a question of individual patients, but it's literally something that will impact all of society. If we can knock cancer off the leading cause of death in our society, that's a that's something that has far-reaching consequences. And there's a challenge to the research community to step up to the plate and think about solutions that will make this a sustainable future, mm-hmm. something that we can sustain over the longer term. The health minister plays a critical role in that, and so do we all, uh, all of us, literally. Um uh, uh, people work as communicators in the media, um, the researchers who are I working at the bench. Mm, me too. <laughs> but also health ministers, politicians, the community. We need to advocate to make a difference. Such an important time, I think. It's a time when I think I would have said up until the past 10 years, um, the, there was a certain amount of hyperbole attached to research. You know, it's an ecosystem like every other where people are trying to make a, to make careers. Mm-hmm. But that's different now it literally is a question that we we can make a difference through research as effectively a standard of care and that's the first time in history that's been the case but it needs to rework the entire system to make it happen so you know there's a big challenge good things to happen
1: is there anything else that you think i really want to say this for for the listener that we haven't you know mentioned
7: well, I think what I would say is don't underestimate the power of your voice to the listener. That um, governments um, represent the people. The people are taxpayers. Cancer kills 100, and, well, kills 48,000 Australians every year and affects 150,000 Australians. It's a public health issue. They're taxpayers, and governments are more influenced by the voice of people affected by these diseases than they are by researchers. Uh, or the industry. So use your voice. Don't let your voice be diluted because it's rare. Bring your voices together and you'll get yourself heard. And this minister shown a commitment to, to pediatric cancer and also to rare cancers like sarcomas. This is a good time to raise your voice. Okay. Right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Love it.
1: Sarcoma Awareness Month is a time when we acknowledge those who are currently undergoing treatment and their families, survivors, those yet to be diagnosed and the memories of those who walked this road fought valiantly and tragically lost their lives to this cancer. Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation wish to recognise each of these brave individuals together with the remarkable not-for-profit organisations dedicated to raising funding and awareness for sarcoma including Rainbows for Kate, Kicking Goals for Zav, Hannah's Chance, Stony Steps Against Sarcoma, Joanna Sewell Research Grants, the GPA, Andrew Asini Research Grants, and the Sarah Grace Foundation. With the generous help and support of the Australian community, each have worked tirelessly to fund critical research and
4: to further shine a light on sarcoma.